It's good to be back with you today. Uh, this week, uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, the music artist that was formerly known as Prince and currently known as Prince uh, passed away. Uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, I personally am not a Prince kind of guy. I, I know, but my wife really is a Prince kind of gal. She loved his music, uh, and so I pretended that it affected me when <laughs> I got the news. And um, I, I, I watched on the internet this week as people were responding to this news. And uh, a pastor down the road, uh, a couple of counties, he posted, a part of my childhood is forever gone. And I kind of get that, you know, when something changed, memories change. I saw another friend of mine who said, I will never, ever forget this day. And I, I, I guess I understand we have those moments in our life. And then I had another friend of mine who said, this is going to change my life forever. Now, I, I, as I thought about those statements, I thought, really? Uh, you know, I, I get it. I understand but, but there are moments that we experience where an event changes our life. Uh, you, every generation has those, do you remember where you were moments? Some of you here, that moment was when the man walked on the moon. You remember. Or when you heard that Kennedy had been assassinated. Maybe the next generation, it was when you heard of Watergate. Or when you heard the news uh, uh, that, that a ceasefire had been called in Vietnam or when Elvis died. Maybe, maybe for the next generation, it was when, my, this is more kind of where I was growing up when Reagan was shot, or I remember exactly where I was when the space shuttle exploded. Um, I, I even remember where I was when O.J. was being chased. You know, you remember those things. Uh, more recently, we had moments like Columbine and all the feelings and emotions. You remember where you were and what you felt or 9-11. We, we have these moments in our life, and, and they're so big because not only do they affect us personally, but they change world history. But, but what I really want to focus on this morning is your history. What events have changed your personal history? And I want to take I don't know, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And in, on your notes, if you're a note taker, jot down four or five things that have changed your personal history. If you're not a note taker, make a mental note. What things have changed you personally? Take a couple of seconds. Somebody tell me one. What's changed you personally? Marriage, okay. What's that? Kids, absolutely, especially if it's plural. What's that? Death of a parent, okay. Anybody else got one? When Jesus found you, okay, absolutely. Baptism, anybody else? Birth of a grandchild. Grandchildren are perfect. You can play with them and send them home, all right. What, any others? A job. a job? Yeah, I wrote down maybe a graduation. 
You know, go, get your college degree, marriage, birth of a child, job, first trip to Rupp Arena. Things like that change your life, you know. Uh, sometimes it's difficult ones. I heard some of them, a, a death of a loved one, a doctor's report. You know, these things happen in our life, and, and we've all had these things that have changed us. Some of them were really, really hard, and some of them were really, really great. Uh, but we've had things that have changed the course of our life. They change the way we make decisions. They change our behavior. They change our opportunities. They change our outlook on life. Well, one of the things on my list, as I heard uh, a minute ago, is the day that Jesus came into my heart and saved me. Uh, when I was 12 years old, the Lord came into my heart. I gave my life to him. And at that moment, I, honestly, I knew that at that moment, a huge deal was going on in my life. I knew it was a big deal. I knew it was important, but I had no idea how big a deal it was going to be in my life. And I didn't recognize how much uh, this event was going to change me. My faith in Jesus has changed oh, uh, the way I view the world. It has changed uh, the way that I treat people. It's changed what I allow myself to do. It's changed the way I handle big events. Well, this is the theme of the book of James, and that is real faith changes us. Our faith in Christ, it, it, it changes us. Uh, faith in Jesus produces this, this real change. You want to know, have I got real faith in Jesus? I'll tell you the best way to examine has it changed me at all? Real faith changes you. It doesn't change just the going to heaven us or, or the show up to church us or straighten up the preachers around us. It doesn't just change the who we are when uh, you know, we're, we're, we're at church us or the put on your nice clothes, how you doing, fine us. It changes the real us, the us when it's just us and our kids us, the factory worker us. The, the us that's on the internet all by ourselves us. The us that some people don't even know about. Real faith, James is going to teach us, changes our speech. It changes how we deal when we get mad. It changes uh, how we feel about the needy. It dictates our motives. It changes the way we handle hardship, the way we resist temptation, the way we treat folks who are helpless. James is going to teach through the next few weeks that, that real faith changes every aspect of our life. So for the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to walk verse by verse, line by line in the book of James and talk about how our faith should be changing us. Now, I want to give you a little heads up on my deal. You might have noticed I wasn't here the last couple of weeks. You might not have noticed. I know how church goes. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, uh, I'm going to be a couple weeks here, a week off, a couple weeks here, a week off until the Lord calls y'all preach, uh, preachers. So when I'm here, uh, I will be walking through the book of James. So if you want to study ahead and have it all figured out before each week when I come back, that's all right. Uh, but we'll study together and we will learn. Well, let's jump straight in uh, to the text. Immediately, the author of the text is uh, revealed, James. Now, there's some debate as to which James this is. There are several Jameses in the New Testament, but I, I think that the clearest understanding 
Uh, and we're pretty sure through, through the content of the book and church history at, that this James is the brother of Jesus. Now, during his life, Jesus' brothers, uh, they, they didn't believe. Yeah, I mean, and I get it. If my sisters were to say, I am the incarnate God, daughter of God, I'd probably be skeptical. But resurrections have a way of changing things. And James decides, you know, I think that maybe he is the Son of God. And maybe because of his unique relationship to Jesus, or maybe because of his unique leadership skills or gifting, he quickly became one of the main leaders in the Jerusalem church. So when he writes this letter, it's respected, extremely respected. In fact, they take James as as the Word of God very quickly uh, in, in the church. Now, his name is a Greek variation of the Old Testament name Jacob. So, Jacob, James, uh, a Greek variation. But this name means one who follows. And we see throughout the letter that he's desperately trying to follow the Lord Jesus in every aspect of his life. Uh, in fact, the book mirrors Jesus' teaching. One of the things that if you study a commentary, you'll find out about the book of James is that James looks like the Sermon on the Mount. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, you find topics that are covered almost in exact order in the book of James. And if it's not covered in the Sermon on the Mount, it's almost, it is always covered, except one little section in chapter 5, in other teachings of Jesus. So it's very close Uh, to the teaching of Jesus. Now, he addresses this letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, this is a reference to the people of Israel, no doubt, but I don't believe that James has a Jewish audience in mind. Uh, I think it teaches us how the early church thought about themselves. The early church saw themselves as a continuation of God's plan throughout history. Uh, Just as the nation of Israel were the people of God in the Old Testament, the church are the people of God now. So the 12 tribes equal the people of God. You know, so when you see that in the New Testament, they're saying this is the, the whole group of the people of God. So the book of James is written to all the people of God of all times. That's us. So when we read the book of James, we need to take to heart what's being said. Now, the phrase that grabs my attention in verse 1 is the phrase, a slave of God. James says, I am a slave of of the Lord. Now, your Bible might say servant. And I get that. The Greek word is doulos, which uh, was the word used for slave in their time. But basically what it means is one who's under authority of another. Now, notice he says he's under two authorities. Did you catch this? Kind of interesting here because this raises some eyebrows. Listen to what he says. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you're reading that, that makes you say, oh, wait a minute. So are there two gods? Well, no, this is not what's going on at all. He doesn't clarify because he believes that Jesus is different than God. He wants to make sure you know what he believes. In James's day, just like in our day, almost everybody says they believe in God. I mean, you go to Cal Berkeley, and those folks say, oh, yeah, there's a God somewhere. He might look like a Martian, and he might be, you know, you know, whatever, or, you know, he grows in a flower in Mozambique or whatever. You, you might find some wild ideas out there, but, but almost everybody believes in God. When I was in Brazil, 
I've been to Brazil about, I guess, eight or nine times now. And the first time I was there, they were telling me how dark the place was and how desperate they were for the gospel and how they needed to hear about Jesus so much. And I got off the plane, and I started talking to people, and everybody said, I love God. I love God. I love God. Deus. That's what God, Deus. Adore Deus. I mean, everybody, everyone. I'm thinking, why are we here? And then all of a sudden, I began to realize they love the concept of God, but they have no idea about the one who was crucified and rose from the dead. So when James writes this phrase, he wants to tell you, yes, I'm one under authority and I'm a slave, but I'm a slave of the one who hung on the cross for my sins, God in flesh who died for me and who by his power rose from the dead and I am his servant, I am his slave. Now, that's strange terminology to us, but the fact is everybody here is slaves to something. All of us are. We are We are slaves to something that has control of our life. Some men are slaves to their work. Some moms, some dads are slaves to their family. Some of us are slaves to our hobbies. Some of us are slaves to our relationships. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you, what are you a slave of? There's only one right answer. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he wants, I want. What he asked me to do, I respond in obedience. Now notice the next part of the phrase. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now this was a time where the people of God were being scattered, pushed out uh, of the comfort of their homeland. Because of persecution that broke out in Jerusalem, the people of God had been uh, forced away from from, from the persecution there in Jerusalem. Your Bible might say, instead of dispersion, the word scattered. Uh, those scattered among the nations. Now, the picture is one who has a seed pouch who's reaching his hand in that seed pouch, and he's taking that seed, and he's just scattering it wherever it goes. Well, that picture, I think, is intentional. James is saying that that the people of God are scattered, but seed does not scatter itself. Really important you get this. James believes that the people who have been scattered have actually been scattered by someone else. And we're going to find out through the book of James, he believes it's God. That God is the one who, who is, is scattering them um, now, this is unusual because if, if you're talking about the 12 tribes, when they were scattered, what were they trying to do? Get back. When they were in Egypt, they were trying to get back to the homeland. When they were in Assyria, they wanted back to the homeland. When they were in Babylon, they wanted back to the homeland. And now, all of a sudden, the people of God, instead of trying to get to the homeland or trying to be, God is intentionally scattering them abroad. Why? Well, do you remember Jesus' last words? What did he say? Go into all the world. Make disciples. And in fact, this is what James says. Listen to what he says. The twelve are scattered, how? Among the nations. And why are they scattered among the nations? Because this is the purpose of our life. Jesus says in Matthew 28, he he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And how are you going to make a disciple of the nation if you're constantly in your homeland? There'll come a day when we rest in our homeland, but right now it's not that day. Right now we are to be among the nations. 
Now, why does God want people among the nations? He wants a lot of people who will give him glory. And so God will scatter us if we will not go. Now, this gives you a taste of James's worldview right in the beginning. He believes that God is at work in you wherever you are, whatever you go through, whatever you're doing, God is working in the midst of that. Now, if you believe this, which I do, and I'm, let's just press this in a little bit. You don't have to raise your hand because I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I want you to think about you. Do you believe that God is at work wherever you are, whatever you're doing, and whatever you go through? You, okay, you got that in here? Okay. If you believe this, then you're faced with a hard reality. You're faced with the reality that sometimes God does things or allows things or allows things to go on in your life that you would never sign up for. We've all been there, haven't we? We have a health issue or a job relocation or an unexpected bill or a school change. We've all been through something that we didn't want to go through. Every one of us in here had probably gone through something that we would have never signed up for on our own because people never want to be scattered. People never want to have health issues. People never want to have rebellious kids. People never want to have financial hardship, whatever. But James believes that God is working in you no matter what. And that's why he says in the very next verse, listen to what he says, consider it great joy. Strange, right? You know, when you're going through hardship, consider it great joy. Now, notice he didn't say feel great joy, Because nobody's happy, you know, when the tire is flat or the luggage is lost or UK loses or the doctor report is bad or the job is gone or the relationship is strained. So we have to do a mental exercise. And that's what's going on here. Consider it. Count it. Think about it in this way. We have to tell ourselves, I know that whatever I'm facing is an opportunity to be used by God, for God to bring me glory, whether he scatters me where I don't want to go or he allows me to face what I don't want to face, God can use this. So because of this, I will count it, God, even in this hardship, a joy to reflect your glory in this hard time. Now he says, consider it joy when you experience various trials. Hardships come in different types and in different amounts. This week, I had an appointment. (laughs) I I had an appointment and an appointment and an appointment, and then I was supposed to preach. I've preached eight times in the last seven days. So I've had plenty of opportunity uh, to share, but I was running and going, and I still got my work to do, and revival's taking place, and a senior adult celebration that I'm leading, and three breakout sessions that I've got to do, and got all of this stuff going on, and I piled everything in my briefcase to make it work and make it happen, and I was running and going and doing, and one day I ran and didn't take my briefcase. The problem is I ran about 160 miles before I realized I didn't have my briefcase, The problem in that briefcase were my notes for my meeting, were my sermon for my revival, were my PowerPoint, and I can't make it without PowerPoint, were my PowerPoint notes for, and all of this was there, and I want to tell you, in that moment, I did not feel joy. 
And, and that's nothing compared to hardships some of y'all face. You know, your, your, your health lost, your loved one lost. But whatever difficulties we face, we have a choice. I can let this beat me and bury me, or I can go through this mental exercise and say, God, maybe you want me to learn to trust you when I ain't got it all figured out the way I would have done it. Lord, maybe you want me to trust you whenever I might not look as slick as I'd like to look. Lord, maybe you want me to... Tr- I forgot my razor too, by the way. And Lord, you'll get that later. Uh, Lord, you, you want me to trust you. Whatever I go through, you want me to trust you. A few years ago, I was... I guess it's been about 15 years ago now. I was at our, the old church at Edgewood in Hopkinsville uh, before we'd relocated, before we'd really started to grow... And we were located in this inner city kind of neighborhood uh, with about 75% rental houses all around us. And so, you know, we had a ministry to senior adults and to neighborhood kids. And that was, there was almost nothing in between. Well, we had some neighborhood kids who were coming who were pretty rough. But we loved on them and we knew that was our calling. And we wanted to love on them and show them the love of Jesus. And we were. Well, a few of the kids came and their older sister happened to show up. But she was... Something wasn't quite right. She was about 18, 19 years old, but there was a bunch missing. And it would move from 7 years old to 45-year-old angry woman. You know, it was kind of that. And she got in about a group of 6 years old and just dropped about 35 uh, F-bombs. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. Sorry, she said it, not me. But anyway, <laughs> over here, yeah, boy, it's back there. <laughs> no, but yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't let this happen. And so I told her, listen, honey, you can't come back as long as there's kids here. You can come back when it's teenagers and adults, but you can't come back when there's kids here. I'm sorry, you just can't. And I was standing outside. And she lit into me, and I blushed. I mean, she lit into me, and she let me have it. She stuck her finger in my face, and I was just standing there. And and unbeknownst to me, an attender at our church was watching what was going on. And I walked inside, and she said, Brother Nick, I've never seen anybody look more like Jesus than you. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. She said, you just took that and didn't say a thing. And I didn't want to tell her I couldn't think anything to say back. <laughs> but, but the point, lady ended up joining our church, became the secretary at our church. But, but the point is, you will never look more like Jesus than when you face adversity and you don't buckle under it. You'll never look more like Jesus when you face hardship and you find a way to keep your composure and give him glory even in the midst of hardship. Have you ever noticed that some people are better at handling hardship than others? You know, they don't get rattled at every turn. They're not blown over by every wind of adversity. And when hardships come, they endure. How'd they get there? Well, I'll tell you how I think they got there. They've been there before. You know, and that, isn't that what James is saying? Listen to what James says in the next verse. Know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You, you've been there. You, you're able to count it joy because you don't learn to run 10Ks overnight. It takes training and testing. You need this endurance. Why does James say that we should learn to endure hardship? So that we can become, next verse, so that we can become 
the mature and complete man of God, woman of God who lacks nothing. Now, translations make this somewhat confusing. One translation says, so that we can become perfect. Um, uh, uh, we all know that we're not perfect, nor will we be, you know. But what's it mean? I think complete's a better word. My translation says, so that you are lacking nothing. Uh, some have abused this phrase. They've taken this phrase, lacking nothing, saying God's going to give you whatever you want. And they've turned this into some type of prosperity gospel garbage, which is not in the Scripture. It's not close to the Scripture. It's not the life Jesus lived. It's not the life that any of the New Testament saints lived. And I promise you, no matter what some idiot on TV says, it's not what God's calling you to live. When he says lacking nothing here, He's not talking about that you're going to drive whatever you want and go wherever you want and have whatever you want. He's not saying that at all. Because listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, the brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation. He doesn't even say he should try to get out of it. If you don't have much, you should thank the Lord. The Lord takes care of me. Then listen to what he says in verse 10. But the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation. Listen, I ain't got nothing because he will pass away like the flower. And then verse 11, he says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. Don't tell me the New Testament teaches that God wants you to be rich. That's insanity. People who preach that don't open their Bible very much. They'll tell you some stories and they'll smile a whole lot. But they don't read their Bible very well or very much. What's he saying then, lacking nothing or perfect? You'll get to the place where people look at you and they'll say, man, I see what you're going through. I see what you have or you don't have, and it doesn't seem to matter to you. Jesus is what's important to you. Your love for him is what is important. You become what God created you to be. You're conforming to the image of Christ. Now, here's the hard truth. Here's, oh, man, here's the hard truth. I've been saving this for the end, so if you throw stuff at me, I can just stop. Here's the hard truth. The only way you can get there to look like Jesus is to endure some hardship. You can't get there any other way. So when hardships come, count it all joy because I'm getting a chance to look like Christ. Who the Bible says in 1 Peter that even though he was falsely accused, he didn't say a word. So the Bible says that even when he was on the cross and they were killing him unjustly, he prayed, Father, forgive them. You want to get like Jesus? It doesn't come by going down an easy street. We might pray, and I've prayed a kajillion times, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Lord, please give me my sermon on Monday every week. Lord, please, I'm hurting. Would you take away my pain? Lord, please, don't let this relationship difficulty fester. I've prayed a thousand times just like you for that cup to pass away. And sometimes, praise the Lord, God is merciful and takes that away. And it's in the praying that I grow and learn. And sometimes God says, no, the only way you're going to get there is to go through this.
Truthfully, there are things in life that are hard to understand how God is using this. The loss of health, aging, financial catastrophe, war, the loss of a child. And I want to tell you, pat answers from a preacher or a friend are going to fall short in those moments. That's why James says, don't miss this. You notice I left out some verses, didn't you? Listen to what James says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, God, I'm trying to consider this pure joy. I know I'm becoming mature. I know it's not all about what I have, but I don't get why this is going on. Why would you allow this? Where were you when this happened? How come you didn't fix this? When you get there, God says, you know, he doesn't say go talk to your preacher about it because I promise you your preacher ain't going to know any more than you know. I don't know why babies die. I don't. I don't know why kids who are born innocently in Africa are starving while I have so much left over that I can just throw it away. I don't understand that. I don't understand why people would be raised in a country with a crazy dictator like North Korea. I don't understand those things. But when you lack wisdom and it happens to you, the good news is you can turn to God. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. And God will show you how you can glorify him. Because see, God's really not interested in you knowing how to run the universe. But he is interested in you becoming like Christ. And if you ask God, he will show you how you can glorify him. And the good news is, he won't criticize you. He doesn't criticize. He gives generously. And without criticism, he'll give to those who need to hear from him. A few years ago, we were going on one of those mission trips to Brazil. They had changed the way they wanted to do the money. Before, we had just all kind of divided up the money, and when we got there, we took, you know, we'd take the money for the trip, for the hotels, for the gas, for the transportation, for the food. We would take that money. We, each person would take about $1,000, so if one person lost it, we wasn't starving for an entire week. You know, and we would take that money, and then we would give it to our man on the ground, and he would convert it into hayas, and he would pay the people. That's the way that it would happen. Hayas, that's the Brazilian uh, currency. Our guy on the ground, we'd gone seven times with him. We trusted him. He said, listen, things have gotten tight. I need you to send stuff ahead of time, because he was paying deposits, and he was paying a lot of that up front. He said, I need you to send it ahead of time. We were a little scared about Sending stuff ahead of time because the banks are really corrupt in Brazil. The only thing more corrupt than the banks in the Brazil is the government. Okay? And, and he said, send it ahead of time. And so we wired him $9,000. The day of our trip arrives, which we have bought non-refundable tickets for, and we have a group of 10 going down. The day of our trip arrives... And the guy on the ground is calling us panicked. I hadn't got your money. Well, we wired it four days ago. I hadn't got the money. What are we going to do? Well, we got together and we prayed, and a couple of leaders of the church said, write a check from the church, give them the money, take it with you like you always take it, go. Well, I, I was kind of like over the pastor in the church, and I knew $10,000 was tough on a church that was deep in debt. I was like, oh, my goodness, we can't do this. But we really believe that's what we were supposed to do, and so we did it. And the whole way on the trip, I'm praying, God, why would you let this happen? God, why would this go on? God, I don't understand where this is at. But we went forward because we knew we were supposed to go. We, we had a new church plant we were helping to start. We knew it's what we were supposed to do. But I'm still questioning, but I'm asking God, and we get there, 
And the guy greets us, and he says, I've got good news, brother. The money came through. And he says, I've got better news. In the three days from the time you wired it till the time I received it, the U.S. dollar doubled in value. And we were able to do twice as much in Brazil as we could have done if the money had gone through on time. So if you lack wisdom and you don't understand what God is doing, pray. And sometimes God shows you, I see what you're doing, God. Somebody asked me, how do you know what the will of God is, Nick? And I usually say, I live five years and I turn around. That's how I know. I kinda, I'm much better at seeing the will of God behind me than I am the will of God in front of me. I am, but, but you trust him when you don't understand. And trust that he is working. Now, when hardships come, God will show you how to glorify him if you want to. But he does say, let him ask in faith without doubting. Now, it's not the, I'm not sure, God, I don't know what to do type of doubt he's talking about. He's talking about God can't use this. God doesn't love me. God's not good type of doubt. And he says that person shouldn't expect anything from the Lord. Now, you know what I've found about people? Doubts are created by misunderstanding. Some people expect God to serve us instead of us serving God. Is God your slave or are you God's? Is he here to make you happy or are you here to make him happy? James believes that we exist for God, and so do I. So real quickly, if you're a note-taker, you're probably panicking. <laughs> this is the way to work in James, so don't be afraid. What can we take away from this? Number one, the goal of our life is to bring glory to God. To declare his worth, to, to honor him with our lives. This is why God created you, to proclaim God's worth and to honor him. But many other things will compete for glory. Money, fame, pleasure, family, all of these things will compete for his glory. I want you to understand that everything that has glory in this life has a fading glory. But there is only one whose glory lasts forever. Number two, God often uses difficult circumstances to help us reflect his glory. Anyone can praise God for a touchdown. Anyone can stay calm lying on a beach on a two-week vacation. Anyone can say they are blessed as their bank account doubles. But it takes God in the life of a believer to praise him in difficulties. And guys, our life is not quality if everything goes smoothly. Quality should be defined if people look at us and see Jesus. That's quality. I could give you illustration after illustration about a life lived well, and most of you would think that's not life. Elizabeth Elliot's husband goes down to South America on a mission trip. He's killed within two weeks of being there. Young couple. God has brought incredible incredible glory to his name through Jim Elliott and through the work of his wife, Elizabeth Elliott. Johnny Erickson Tata, vibrant teenager, beautiful girl, jumps off a high dive, 
as a young girl and is paralyzed, and best she can do is write and paint with her teeth. But God brought incredible glory to a lady who, has writ- who decided to count it all joy and has written book after book and painted beautiful scenes of what God has done and possibly will do. Oh, we could give more, lots more. But our joy should be determined by the opportunities we have to show Jesus, not how easy our life is. And then fourth, God will reward those who faithfully serve him in hardship. Let me finish with this verse. A man who endures trials is blessed. If you hold up when it's hard, if you reflect Jesus even when it's tough, you will be blessed because, verse 12, the rest of verse 12 says, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Our hope is not just here. Our hope is that he is the one who is the eternal God, who selects a children who he will love forever. And he gives them eternal life and they will never perish but will rest with him in the beauty of his glory forever. Sometimes when we think that we're just cruising through life, we get clotheslined. The question is not why did it happen, because I'm not sure we'll find an answer to that here. My brain's not big enough to handle the whys of how Billions of people connect to one another and billions of events connect to other. My brain's just not big enough to figure that out. So the question I really have to wrestle with is will I give glory to God even if it's tough? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truthfulness of it. I thank you for the opportunity to teach it today. Lord, I thank you that you, your love cannot be questioned by those who really experienced it because you died on the cross for our sin. You will take us to heaven when we die. You will walk with us through the good and the bad in this life. And Lord, we can rest in the fact that you are good. God, I pray that as we have this time where we reflect on what you have done for us, that our hearts would be convinced that it is our goal of our life to live it for your glory. Lord, I love you. I thank you for Jesus. I pray that you would speak in this time. Amen.